Okay, if you would, turn in your Bibles again to John chapter 17 as we will bring to a conclusion uh, the earth, uh, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus for his disciples and then um, conclude his direct teaching of them prior to his uh, going to be crucified and offered up as the sacrifice for all of us. So if you would, uh, in John chapter 17... I'm going to read starting in verse 19 and then all the way down through 26, um, the final aspect of this prayer that Jesus gives us here in chapter 17. So beginning in verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they, that they may be perfect in unity, or perfected in unity, and that the world may know that thou didst send me, and didst love them, even as thou dost love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst, didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, allow, O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known that the love wherewith, wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, as we uh, uh, conclude this section of Scripture, and we'll talk a little bit more about the timing and the location uh, as we get into the end of this passage, but I want to begin with a kind of a review back. He is talking to his disciples, and then he includes all of us in this prayer that he gives his disciples um, when he says in verse uh 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So that means that his prayer is not just for his apostles, his 12, his disciples that are going to become apostles, including, I think, Paul, that he is going to appear to personally uh, to be his apostle also. But not only did he do it, and he's praying for those whom God has given him to be his disciples, but he's also praying for us, those who are going to believe in Jesus Christ through the testimony of the apostolic foundation that was laid down and then the continuation of the growth of the church and the bringing in of the body of Christ, the bride, throughout the church age. And so that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the church. All those who are going to be a part of the church age. He is, he is praying for them. Now, the first thing he says there that we need to make sure that we understand is that for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now, the word sanctify means to be set apart. It means to be um, set apart for a particular purpose. But as the church, we have to be set apart in truth. You have so much of the church today that is claiming to be part of the church, claiming part of the ministry of the church, but they are in error, and they have so much things that are wrong with, in, or in disagreement with the apostolic doctrine that was laid down. So make sure that you understand that when Jesus is praying for the church to be set apart <clears throat> as the body of Christ, to do the work of Christ, and that's what we're set apart for. The body of Christ is to be Jesus' body on earth during this age. 
In other words, if Jesus was here, this is what he would be doing. He's not here in person, so we, as the body of Christ, must do the ministry and must do the work that Jesus Christ would have been doing. So the work that Jesus was doing as he was calling his disciples, when he goes away, that he's going to indwell them with the Holy Spirit, give them the Holy Spirit to indwell them, so that they will continue to do the work of Christ as a collective body, as doing the work of Christ, as being gifted by the Holy Spirit throughout the church age, throughout the world, as a unified, sanctified body of believers that are sanctified in the very truth that Jesus has been giving them. Now we talked, <clears throat> somebody asked a question to me when we're talking about, and we'll get into this a little bit, when we're talking about the, the deity of Christ versus the humanity of Christ, and when, and when Christ says that the day of his appearing, or the day of his coming, the day of the rapture, no one knows, not even I, the Father only in heaven. And so what does that mean? That Jesus, is he, does he not know? Is he not? Jesus' purpose on earth was to reveal the ministry or reveal the Father in the areas of ministry that he was given. And the inclusion of the timing of the second coming of Christ, or the timing of the rapture of Christ, was not part of what he was given to give to us. It was not part of the, the revelation that he was to provide for us. And so from that standpoint, it didn't fit with his ministry on earth to provide that time. It didn't mean that he didn't know as deity the timing of his coming. Does that make sense? So it wasn't included in what he was here for. He was here to reveal what the Father had purposed to reveal to us and everything that we need to know he has revealed. And that's one thing that we didn't need to know. And so from that standpoint, he did not know that because it wasn't part of his ministry to come to do that. That's just a little bit of a side. So we're to be sanctified in the truth. That means we're set apart in all that Jesus has instructed us and that was carried out through his apostles and was continued in the revelation given to the apostles as they wrote down the scriptures of the New Testament. So we only have authority and we only have a ministry that is tied to the revelation of the word of God given to us by the apostles. So the completion of the word of God is what we have the authority to act upon, and we're to be only acting as we are set apart to that truth. So we have no other basis to claim things that are apart from the Word of God. And that's what he's, that, that's what he's praying here, that, they, that these disciples, as they lay the foundation for the church and then the church going forward, would always be tied to, set apart to, only working out of the reality of that truth that was laid down in the Word of God. So you can't just go on your own and come up with principles and things that are contrary to the Word of God. It's got to be the Word of God for you to, to represent Jesus Christ as His body, as our ambassadors. Any questions about that? So that's why it's so important that we study the Word of God. It's why it's so important that we teach the Word of God, that we share the Word of God, that we're focused on the Word of God because we're to live out the reality of the truth that God gave through his, his apostles and through his prophets in the Old Testament. So that's very clear on that. The other thing I want to say here is, again, he says in verse 21, that they all may be one. Now, when we talk about the Trinity, and that the Trinity is three persons, all one. In fact, Jesus said that in chapter 10, uh, verse 30 in John. He says, I and the Father are one. That doesn't mean that the Father and the Son are one individual, right? Would it make sense to say that the disciples are all one person? 
No. They, can, they maintain their identity as an individual. It's just like when you get married and it says they became one flesh. That didn't mean that they, you exist as one person or one being. You exist as two individuals with something tied together. Okay, So when he says that they may all be one, he's not talking about that the disciples become one person. It talks about they're, they're united by their nature that is given to them by the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. And that's what he says. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, they also may be in us. In other words, I in the Father, the Father in me, what does that mean? What does it mean? When Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father's in me. Their nature is the same. Their character is the same. Their essence is the same. Their purpose is the same. They are in total harmony with each other. And so as the church is to come together as one, we're to be in perfect harmony from the standpoint of what we're sanctified to do. So as far as being the body of Christ, as far as exhibiting that nature of God and that character of God, we are to be one, united together in that sense, just like the Father is united with the Son. And we are in him, which means we are indwelled by the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus talked about. He talked about that he's going to send the Spirit of God to indwell us. So with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, we have the capacity to live out that reality that we are all united together as one. Now, how does that happen? We'll go to Galatians chapter 5 again and remember what it means to have the outflow from your nature that is within you. Before you were born again, you had only a nature of the flesh. And, they, and Paul talks about that in verse 17 of Galatians chapter 5. or verse Starting with verse 16, he says, I, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Before you were born again, all you had was a fleshly nature. It came from Adam. You were born with it. And out of that nature comes these things. For the, Verse 17, for the for the flesh sets a desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if this is the bent of your life, if this is the practice of your life, it means that you haven't been born of God. That's why First John talks about that. And he says, if you've been born of God, you cannot sin. You cannot sin in this way. It cannot be your natural way. It cannot come out of your nature within you that you sin like this. If that is true, then you haven't been born of God. So you do not inherit the kingdom of God if this is the bent of your life. If everything you do flows out of a nature that is flesh, you haven't been born of God. So when you're born of God, you receive a new nature that is from God. And therefore, 1 John can say that if you've been born of God, you cannot sin. That new nature that comes from God is perfect, is holy. You cannot sin out of a nature that comes from God. So the outflow of your heart, of your if it's truly that new heart in you, it will not be representative by these things of the flesh. So the Spirit of God who indwells you, as He is in control of you, and the how does it, the Bible commands us to be filled with the Spirit, which means to be controlled by the Spirit. So if you're to obey that command, how do you obey the command to be controlled by the Spirit? Anybody? 
How's that possible? How do you obey the command to be controlled by the Spirit? I mean, he says very clearly, be ye filled or be ye controlled with the Spirit of God. It's a command. First John 1 John, <clears throat> Exactly. If we repent and confess our sins, the Spirit of God automatically desires to control your thoughts, your heart, your desires, all that you have. So if you are confessing your sins, and that's what happened when you first got saved. When you first got saved, you confessed the sin of being a sinner, an unbeliever. And you confess that sin of unbelief, and you profess faith in Jesus Christ. And that mo at that moment, you were cleansed of your sin, and you were filled with the Spirit, even though you were ignorant in most things of your life. So being filled does not translate into being mature or being knowledgeable. It just means that at that moment, the Spirit is controlling your thoughts, your affections, your desires. So at the moment you're saved, you can be filled with the Spirit and still be immature and under, in your understanding. But at the moment that you are you're repenting of your sin and you're confessing your sin, the Spirit of God will control your thoughts and will control your actions. And it will be obvious because the fruit of the Spirit will come forth from you if you are filled with the Spirit and you are born again. If you have a nature from God and the Spirit of God is controlling you, this will be the, 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 the aspect of the truth of your life. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In other words, so if at any time in your life, at whatever stage of growth that you're in, whatever stage of maturity or knowledge you're in, at any time in your life, if you are confessing your sins, then the, the fruit of the Spirit will become obvious as the overflow of your life. Okay? And as that overflow of your life is true about you, it says in verse John chapter 17, verse uh, 21, Even as thou the Father art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. How is the world going to know that Jesus Christ came from the Father through the church? Our testimony is that Jesus is the, is the incarnate word that became flesh to die for our sins. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. And now we are, have newness of life and the spirit of God indwells us and we are going to heaven. How does the world know that that's true? He sees the, the world sees the fruit of the Spirit overflowing in us and coming down amongst us so that it, when the world sees that, that is the only way they're going to know the reality of God through Jesus Christ in us. Because there's something uniquely different about the fruit of the Spirit that the world cannot grasp or understand, and they'll say, what is it about you that makes you so different than the rest of us? It's the love of God manifested by the Spirit of God that overflows my heart. And so therefore, we give a testimony of Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came down to earth and, was, and died for our sins and was raised from the dead and now has departed back to heaven and we are his ambassadors. And so the world can only know because God has ordained that the, that the gospel be proclaimed 
And that through the preaching of the gospel and the living out of the reality of that gospel is the only means by which the world is going to be evangelized. So evangelism is not a method. You don't study how you have a method to coerce the world to become Christians. You live out the reality of Christ in us, and the world sees something in you that's different, and then you are able to share the gospel because of the reality of the Spirit of God overflowing in your life. So that unity of being Jesus Christ in the Father and the Father in Him means that there's nothing about Jesus' life when He was on earth that did not represent the Father's character and nature and desires. So when Jesus was walking on this earth, He was representing all the things that the deity has in them. As far as their essence, their character, their nature, everything about that was perfectly relayed by Jesus Christ. So we're to do the same thing but we're not perfect in our way we do it. But if we're walking in the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is the overflow of our life, we will be manifesting the reality of God in us. And that's the only way we can. Because if God truly is in us, and we are truly confessing our sins, the Spirit of God will control our emotions, our thoughts, our hearts, and our actions, and we will be overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit. And those things are not like the flesh. They're contrary to the flesh. And if you're always falling back into the flesh, you're not representing God, and you're not, uh, you're not obeying and fulfilling what Jesus prayed that we would be the actual reality of the body of Christ demonstrated by the power of the Spirit of God. Okay. Now, verse 22. <clears throat> and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. Now, when we talk about the glory of Christ, he says, the glory that thou hast given me. So obviously, he is not talking about his eternal glory as God. He is talking about something different than that that was manifested in his humanity, right? Because as God, he is glorified. As God, he is always deity. What, is, what does it mean when we say we want to give God glory? How do you give God glory? You ever thought about that? How do you give God glory? You say, to God be the glory. And I want my life to glorify God. How do you give God glory? You can't give God anything. He has everything. So how do you give glory to God? See if I can. To his image. Okay. Walk in obedience. Walk in obedience. When you give God glory... You are seeing him for who he is and portraying him for who he is to everyone else. That's how God is glorified in you, is that you are representing or you are giving him with an understanding of who he is and then a life that lives out that reality of who he is. In other words, the character, the essence. When you talk about the name of God, you're talking about who he is, what he, what he, what he is. And so when you talk about the God of Israel, when Israel was talking about the God of Israel to the rest of the world, they were saying, the God of Israel is the one true God. And this is, his, this is who he is. He is a creator. He has all power. He has all knowledge. He is perfect in his holiness. He is, he is that God. And so as they lived out that and they understood that, they were giving God glory. They were recognizing who he is. So you recognize that. So when Jesus says, Father gave me glory, he's, go back to chapter, uh, I mean, chapter 17, verse 3. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given to me. How did Jesus glorify God on the earth? By By making known to the world the will of the Father. And so therefore they were making known the reality of who God is. He was manifesting the essence of the character of God, the nature of God in his life. And he was making known to the world the mission and the ministry and the purpose and the goal of God in bringing Jesus Christ to earth. So he was giving God glory in the fact that he was revealing God the Father to the people. And so therefore he was giving God glory because he was opening up the curtain. He was representing God. He was allowing people to see God for who he was and understand the purpose and the reason why he's there is to do the will of the Father. Okay? So then he goes on there and says, in verse 4, he says, I have I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do, and now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So what is he asking the Father to do now? When he says, glorify thou me. How is that going to happen? Jesus has become a man. He has took on flesh. Now when Jesus became a man, it says that he humbled himself. So what does his humanity do in, in regards to his glory? It veils it. So in his humanity, he is not really showing forth who he really is. He is veiled or he is hidden in his humanity. That's why when you see the transfiguration, what happened at the transfiguration? His glory was revealed. Even though he was still in the flesh, his glory was revealed through the flesh. In spite of the flesh, his glory came forth from it. So in his humanity, in his flesh, he is is lessened in the sense of no one can see his glory in his humanity. They looked upon him and he was a common man. In fact, Isaiah says there was nothing special about him as far as his appearance. So just looking, it was kind of like when the Jews picked Saul to be their king because his appearance was so much greater than everybody else. He was taller, he was stronger, he was the most magnificent man of men, and so they picked Saul to be their king. But when Jesus came on, there was nothing about his statue or his appearance that caused him that people would say, oh, he is a god. No, he was a man. And his humanity veiled his glory, his deity. So when Jesus says, And now glorify thy me together with thyself, with the glory which thou had before, he is saying, Take my humanity veil away and let me be glorified. Now the first stage of that was what? The resurrection. So in the resurrection, he came forth in a glorified body. But it wasn't a fully glorified body in the sense that when he appeared to the disciples, they didn't see his true glory as he had with the Father. They saw a partial glory in a resurrected body. Okay? Now this body could go through walls. It wasn't tied to the fleshly body he had before. It was a glorified body, but it was a resurrected body. But then when he went to heaven, it became a, a body where he had the fullness of the glory of God, even in bodily form. Now, before he became flesh, the three persons of the Trinity were all spirit beings 
all the same essence, all the same being, all the same glory. And now you have Jesus Christ has become a man and will always be a man, but now he is glorified man. And John saw him in Revelation 1. He saw him with his fully manifested glory as a man. You could see him, which you can't see God. You can just see God's glory. But you could see Christ in his glorified state of a body, but yet you could see the deity and the glory of the, of the essence of God coming forth through that body. So when John saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, even though John had seen the resurrected Christ on earth, when he saw the glorified resurrected Christ in heaven, it was a total different ballgame. And he fell down as a dead man because he couldn't stand in the presence of that glory because it was too much. So now Jesus is truly glorified at the right hand of the Father, even though he is visibly seen, it is full of God's glory. Now, in verse 22, he says, The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. What does that mean? He has given them glory? What does that mean? Well, he's already given them glory, which means in the mind of God it's already happened. So you go back to Romans chapter 8, and you see the process of God's purpose being carried out before the foundation of the world, and you see that process being established. He says in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who, are, who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So in the purpose of God, it's already happened. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now what image of his Son are you talking about? the glorified Son of God with a glorified body. So he has purposed that you be conformed to the image of the glorified Son, and in the mind of God it's already happened. And so when Jesus says, the glory which thou givest me, which is a resurrected, glorified body, I give to them. That means that, we're gonna, that we have a resurrected, glorified body in the mind of God that will come about in reality in time. So he's talking about the glorified body of the resurrected people of Christ. Is what he's saying. The glory which thou givest me, which was a glorified, resurrected body, restored to the glory that he had before as God, now he has as God-man in heaven. And now he says, this same glory I give to them. Now, are we going to have the glory of God? Not in the sense of being come God, but in the sense of being the children of God. Now, let's, let's just look at real quickly this, this aspect of understanding what it means to be the children of God and yet not the children of God yet. We are the children of God. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, and when we're born again, we're born again into his, into his family. We are the children of God, but yet we have not become the children of God yet. Okay? In John chapter 1, when he says... In verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, 
He gave the right to become the children of God. Okay? Now, when you receive Jesus Christ, you are born again, and you are the children of God. Right? And then he goes on and says, who are these that he has given the right to become children of God? Is those who believe in his name, which means you are born again, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So if you are born of God, you have been given the right to become children of God. Now, you are born again, which means you're born into God's family, which means you're chosen before the foundation of the world, which means in the mind of God you are already glorified, so you are the children of God, but yet you're not yet children of God. Okay? So go back to Romans chapter 8, and when he's talking about the creation of God, groaning, in verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to the futility not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he's talking about the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what is the glory of the children of God? The resurrected body, the glorified body. And so the, the, the world will not be freed from its slavery until the Son of God comes back to the earth to deliver it from the, 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 the curse. So when he comes back to set up the kingdom, the, during the kingdom the earth is, is, is relieved of its curse. And who comes back with Christ to set up the kingdom? The glorified church of God the children of God glorified in their glorified state. Now go on in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. We're born again in the Spirit, therefore we are identified as the children of God, but we're not yet the children of God in the sense of the reality. Because he says, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why are we groaning within ourselves? What are we groaning for? As those who are born of God that are still living in this flesh, what are, we gro- what are we groaning for? We're groaning for the relieving of ourselves from this sinful flesh and being in a state where we'll never have a sinful thought again. We'll never have a sinful action again. We'll be freed from every part of this aspect of the flesh. And when will that take place? Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So when our body is redeemed... We will receive the fullness of the adoption as fully sons, fully engaged sons, fully uh, inherited sons when we are adopted with a body. And it won't happen until then. I can. (laughs) First John 3 2, quote it for me. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Okay, so we are children of God, but yet we're not fully adopted sons of God until we have a glorified body that is in conformity with his body. The purpose of God was to conform us to the image of his glorified son. And until that happens, we're not fully incorporated as far, as far as the realization of our adoption as sons. We're not there yet. We don't have the full reality or the full realization of being adopted sons until we have the glorified body. So when does that take place? First Thessalonians 4. When that takes place is when he brings the church out of this either 
alive in the flesh on earth or dead dead as believers and translated into an eternal state with him. So the, the, the coming of this time frame when we're going to receive that adoption, the realization of that adoption fully in his presence as he, as he is, is the rapture of the church. In verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep that have died in Christ, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Bring with him where? Where did Jesus go? To my Father's house to prepare a place for you. And if I went and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again to receive you unto myself where I am, which is his Father's house. And so he says here, for, in this, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So at that time, the dead in Christ will be resurrected with a glorified body. The living in Christ will be changed into a glorified body according to 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul tells the Corinthian church the reality of that change, I say this in verse 50, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, or we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And we will put on immortality, and we will be put on imperishability, because we will be like Christ in an eternal state with a glorified body. And so when, when Jesus says he's praying in John 7, 17 to the Father, that they will be like me, and that they will come to be with me, that's what he's talking about. He says, the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, um, I and them and thou and me that they may be perfected in unity that the world may know that thou didst send me and dost love them even as thou didst love me. Now this word here, it says, I and them and thou and me that they may be perfected in unity. That word perfected means absolutely complete. And there's two aspects of that. We are completed as the body of Christ, as we're brought into the body of Christ, and we're his ambassadors on this earth. And if we live out that reality of, of Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us to overflow with the fruit of the Spirit, then the world knows us that way. But I think it goes beyond that. It says, when he says, the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, even as thou didst love, even thou didst love me. I think the the future reality of that will be at the great white throne judgment when the children of God are with Christ, because it's said in 1 Thessalonians, from the time of the rapture for all eternity, wherever Christ is, we're there with him. So at the end of the millennial kingdom, when there's the great white throne judgment and Jesus Christ is the judge over all the, the lost of all the ages of time, we're there with him. And when it says here that the world may know, I think he's talking about the world will know because they see the resurrected bodies of those who testified of Jesus Christ. They testified that Jesus Christ came from the Father and was the Son of God to deliver them to eternity. And when the world at the Great White Throne sees those believers, 
in a glorified state like Christ, they're going to know the reality of what was told them in time. So Jesus is talking about, I think, that completion and that perfection of unity is demonstrated totally in the glorified state. Donna. The resurrected body of Jesus that people saw and touched and whatever is, I understand you to say, is not the same body that John saw in Revelation. It is the same body. It has just been added the whole, the fullness of the glory of God to it. So John saw the resurrected body that Jesus had when he came out of the grave. It doesn't change. The resurrected body did not change from the standpoint of the body. What changed was the infusion of the glory of God into that body at, you know, when he went to heaven. So he's now, he is now revealed in all of his deity glory, which before he just had the body that was like our body. So we will have the body like Jesus had when he was on earth. We will not be infused with that glory that he had as God. So we'll be like him in the sense that we had his same glory, same resurrected body, but we will not be like him as we will not be God. We don't, become, we don't ever become God. We're the children of God, and we represent him, and we are given his nature, and we have a resurrected body, but we don't have a body that emanates from itself the glory of God. Paul. Oh. Was is what John saw in Revelation was that more similar to what the transformation was like? The transfiguration, right? It probably was a little more similar to that, but I think it, it, it entailed a lot more. I mean, with, with what they saw in the transfiguration was he glowed. He glowed in a way that he didn't glow in his humanity, which means the, the deity came through his flesh that was on earth. But what John saw in, in Revelation was his the essence of the the essence of the glory of God flowing through that resurrected body. Yeah. So kind of like when Moses came off the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, I think the transfiguration of Jesus in an earthly body was similar to what it, it glowed with the, the glory of God. Yeah. All right. Everybody good on that? Right. Any questions? That's a lot, man. That's a lot. It's, 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 it's amazing. Okay. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Okay, so what's he talking about? He's desiring that they go to heaven to be with him where he's at and to be in the same condition that he is with a resurrected body. So even though when we die, our souls go to be with God in heaven, it's not the same as when we are with a resurrected, glorified body. Our souls are in heaven, and we are freed from the flesh from that standpoint, but even when we're freed from the flesh, we long to be clothed with a glorified flesh, a glorified body. Not flesh, a glorified body. Get that straight. Okay? So it's not flesh and blood. It's a glorified body that is not flesh and blood. The, the glorified body, the eternal body, <clears throat> is not have the basis of this body where it's based on the blood and the, the nutrition and the oxygen that comes from this environment that we live in. This body of flesh has to have those. The eternal body will not. It'll be a different basis of life. It'll be the life of God in us, and we will not need that nourishment to keep that life going. Okay. <clears throat> so Jesus desires that they will be brought with him at the time that God has ordained for him to take his bride back, his church back. And again, he's talking about the church saints. The other saints we'll talk about later, they have their own timing, they have their own things that God's going to deal with the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. 
and the millennial kingdom saints, but right here he's talking to his disciples and those that become part of the church through their ministry. So the rapture is for the disciples and for their, those who become part of the church through their ministry, and it's not including the rest of the people that God has a program for. He's talking about the rapture is for the church saints that are, that are in Christ to be his body. <clears throat> okay. In order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Now, when he says that God just loved him for the foundation of the world, he's not talking about the love that is always eternally existent between the Godhead. There's, you got it, there, there is a distinction between the eternality of the Godhead and the purpose of the Godhead in creation. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If God had not purposed to create anything, would he still be God? Yeah, the, the very definition of God is God is self-existent without the need of anything. So he didn't have to create anything to be God. He is God. And then in that sense that if God had purposed not to create anything, the three persons of the Trinity would be the same for, e, for eternity as they were in eternity before he purposed to create anything, and that is that they were all equally the same. Equally, in essence, they were all spirit beings. They were three individual beings, all equal in every aspect. As God purposed to create, the Trinity took on different roles to fulfill the purpose of God. But in their essence, there are one. In their roles, they have different distinctions. Okay? So when he, when he says here that thou didst love me before the foundation of the world, he is not talking about the love of the Trinity within itself. He's talking about the love that was bestowed on the Son, the only begotten Son that became the, the Son of God in the form of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word. God loved that Son before the foundation of the world as the only begotten Son of the Father. So he set his his love upon him. This, this came at a point in time. This was not from all eternity. Before the foundation, before anything was created, God had purposed that God, including all three persons, had purposed that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, would become flesh and become a man and become Jesus Christ of Nazareth, become a man. And God purposed and God loved him before the foundation of the world. Before he ever became that in reality, God had set his affection upon him. God had set his love upon him just like God said his love upon us before we ever came into existence. But Jesus was loved because he was the only begotten of the Father. Thou hast disloved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and thou hast known that thou didst send me, and I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. And again, this is the, the carrying forth of the gospel, the carrying forth of the purpose of the church is that they may, again, just like he made the name of the Father known to them, which we talk about the name means the representation of the Father, who he is, all about his purpose, his will, his desires. Now, as Jesus made that known, made known to the disciples, now they are to make that known to us. And so God is going to use them to make known to us the same name of the Father as we go forth in the world, representing the Father, representing Jesus Christ as his ambassadors to give forth the name of the Father to the world. In other words, to reveal who he is, therefore giving him glory. 
Because if the world can see him and the Spirit of God can take their hearts and make them alive to that and use the message of the gospel to bring that in, then we will be making known to the Father, the, the name, making the name of the Father known to the world. And this will be known because of the love of God that is manifested in us and toward each other as the disciples are called to love one another so that the world might know that we have the love of God in us. Jesus is praying this prayer in the presence of his disciples so that they might see and know the relationship between the Son and the Father and how he has included them in this reality of the, the life of God, the love of God, the nature of God, the character of God flowing through them. And that's the purpose. Now he's preparing them for what's fixing to happen. Even though they, they can't comprehend it, even though they can't have the power to, to live it out right now, when the Spirit of God comes upon them at Pentecost, all this stuff comes back. And then they, they, they understand the entirety of what Jesus is saying here, what Jesus is praying for them. They understand the entirety of that when they're dwelled with the Spirit of God at Pentecost. But until then, until then, they're not going to be prepared to be his witnesses because they don't have the power and the understanding of all that he has told them until the Spirit of God brings it alive back to them, brings it to remembrance to them. Okay? So he finishes up uh, this message, and now I've got to go back and make a correction. Not a correction in what we're teaching about what he said, but a correction in the timing and the location of what where he said this. So I want to make sure we do that. Look in chapter 18, and I'll explain to him just as we go through this. In chapter 18, verse 1, immediately after this is taking place, it says, Jesus spoke in these words. He went forth from his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. So he is going over the Kidron Valley to a garden. Now, back when we first started this Lord's Supper timing, which flows into all this that we've been going through from John chapter 13 to, to now. Go back to John chapter 13. I want to explain to you a little bit about what I'm going to try to correct. In John chapter 13, during the Lord's Supper, you remember that Judas was with them, and Jesus had said, one of them is going to betray me. And so... Uh, and he told, he told John that the one whom he dips a morsel of food in and gives it to that will be the one. And so that happened. And Jesus told Judas in verse 27, what you do, do quickly. And then in verse 30 says, so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. And then it says, when therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. But he goes on down there and then he says in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you shall follow me later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow three until you deny me three times. So here you have the occurrence of Jesus telling Peter that before morning that Peter will deny him three times. If you go to the Matthew account, and this is where it gets confusing, and so you have to be careful when you read all the different accounts to try to make them fit. In Matthew chapter 26, 
Verse 26 through 29 is the, the, the setting up of the Lord's Supper or the communion supper is instituted when Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Then he says in verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night for his written I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. And then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, this is where I got confused because I had looked at a map of old Jerusalem and it had, it had shown the Garden of Gethsemane on the west side of the Kidron Valley in the proximity of the Temple Mount. And I either misunderstood the map and it had the, the, the title of Gethsemane pointing across the, of the ravine or the map was wrong. But the, and Nick can help me, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the east side of the Kidron Valley. The same side as the Mount of Olives. And so when he says here they went out to the Mount of Olives, I was assuming that they went out to the Mount of Olives to do all this teaching and then they came back across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. But the Garden of Gethsemane is at the bottom or the base of the Mount of Olives. It's on the same side of the Kidron Valley. And so what I have come to conclude is that all that we've gone through with the teaching in John chapter 13 through 17, where Jesus is speaking to them about everything he's telling them and then praying for them, I believe happened in the upper room. I believe it all happened in the upper room. And then they sang a hymn and they went out across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives to on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? Now, that, what that means is that Jesus reiterated what he said to Peter twice. I believe he said it at the Lord's, at, in the upper room as they were talking about Judas betraying him and, and that, that they would, you know, that they would also be scattered. And Peter said, I won't, I'll, I'll go wherever you go. And then Jesus said, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. And so then, and then I think you go back to Matthew 26, and then they left, they sang a hymn, and they went out of Mount Olives. Now, if this is right in the context of what happened in time, then it's after the high priestly prayer that Jesus just prayed that they go out and they sing a hymn. So the idea that you have communion and you sing a hymn and you go out is not exactly, would not be exactly correct in the sense of tying it to this exact time. It would if you include the entirety of the Lord's Supper and the teaching of Jesus and the high priestly prayer and then them going out to the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley to the area of Gethsemane. Okay? So all I'm saying is, whereas before I said that they left and they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus did all this teaching in the Mount of Olives and, and then they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, if the Garden of Gethsemane was on the east side of the Kindred Valley, that would make sense. But since it's on the west side and you get to chapter 18 of John and it says they crossed the Kindred Valley to go to Gethsemane, that means they had to be coming from Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. Does that make sense? doesn't change anything we taught on all what you said. It just, I like to be, get the picture of the timing and the location of where they're at. Well, I, th I think that makes better sense that Jesus reiterated to Peter 
more than on the second time that he was going to deny him. Does that make sense? So John's passage makes it clear that Jesus told Peter that before he does all the high priestly prayer and all the teaching that he gave them. The Matthew passage makes it clear that he told them after they left to go to the Mount of Olives. So it, 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 to me, it, it makes it sense that because Peter was denying, Jesus, denying that he was going to deny Christ more than once, that it makes sense that Jesus was going to reiterate to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to be scattered. Okay. Okay, so just going back to set the location. Again, we're a Thursday night. They have the Lord's Supper. Judas is there. Judas is identified as the one that's going to betray him. Judas goes out. It's in the night already. It's at nighttime. So he goes out in the night to prepare to betray Jesus. Then Jesus goes into his discourse from John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 17. And then they go out, crossing the Kidron Valley to the area of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus reiterates to Peter the same thing he's already told them while he's in the upper room. You're going to deny me three times. And they sing a hymn. They go out to the area of the Mount of Olives. And then they, they come to the place of Gethsemane. Okay? Now, what happens at Gethsemane? Let me make sure. Oh, we're already out of time. We'll have to pick up that next week. Uh, next week, we'll go back to Matthew chapter 26 because this account is not recorded in John's gospel. And I want to share that with you because I think it's important. So what happens when they get to Gethsemane is Jesus now transitions from his high priestly prayer for them to his agonizing prayer for himself to go to the cross. Okay? So we'll look at that, that passage in, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, about the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane because we need to understand. Because he says, my God, he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. So what does that mean? So we need to look at that. So we'll pick up there next week as we continue in our Passion Week. Um, the high priestly prayer is, is over. They're leaving the upper room. They're going, they're going through Jerusalem to cross the Kidron Valley over into the area of the Mount of Olives, going to the Garden of Gethsemane at this time, late in the night on Thursday evening, after they had had all the discourse there in the upper room.